Hello, everybody. This is Dan Maholland, and with me is my partner, Phil Zerone. Today, we're doing a podcast on the OSHA Emergency Temporary Standard for COVID-19 for healthcare employees, employers, rather, and their employees, which just came out uh, about a week ago. Today, when we're recording this, is June 17, uh, 2021. So, uh, like anything that's coming out from the government regarding COVID, this is always subject to change. But we wanted to get this podcast out right away because all of our clients are healthcare uh, employers and they need to know uh, what the new requirements are. Some are requirements that have already been in place, uh, some are very detailed, and the devil is always in the details with any federal regulations. So, Phil, jumping into it. What is an emergency temporary standard, and is it binding on healthcare employees? Uh, yes, it is. It, it is binding, so that is one of the first things to keep in mind. Uh, basically, the Occupational Cell Health and uh, Occupational Safety and Health Act gives OSHA the authority to issue these binding regulations without going through the normal notice and comment rulemaking period. Uh, to issue this ETS, Emergency Temporary Standard, OSHA had to find that employees were exposed to grave danger from substances such as COVID and that the emergency standard was necessary to protect employees from that danger. So under the act, OSHA must now begin rulemaking for for a permanent or, or final regulation. This ETS is viewed now as a proposed regulation. Uh, the ETS will be valid until it's superseded by a final regulation. And in theory, OSHA is supposed to do that within six months of publishing the ETS in the Federal Register. We'll see if that actually happens or not, given the complexity of this and the time it takes to adopt the final regulation. But uh, that's the theory anyway. But uh, yes, it is binding once it takes effect. Now, it hasn't officially taken effect yet. Uh, the ETS will become effective. 14 days after it's published in the Federal Register. And that hasn't happened yet. Um, there have been expectations that it would be published very soon in the Federal Register, but it hasn't happened yet. But once it is published, then it'll take effect 14 days after that. So one of the things that I think you need to be on the lookout for is when it comes out in the Federal Register. And again, today is June 17. We don't know if it's going to be published within a day, a week, or whatever. Usually, there's a couple of weeks lag between the informal release of regulations and their publication in the Federal Register. But that's one I think if you get our uh, Health Law Express, the email that goes out every Thursday, uh, we'll be covering this very closely and we'll let you know when that happens. But uh, right now, uh, do you think that there's a grave danger to employees that would allow this ETS to withstand judicial challenge if somebody sues once it comes out in the Federal Register. Yeah, that's an interesting issue. There's been a lot of uh, controversy and debate about whether the ETS was even needed or not. Um, it's taken a long time for the government to come out with this. And representatives of various employers have said, look at how the numbers are going down. People are getting vaccinated. We're not in the same position that we were in even four months ago. So why bother with the CTS? Uh, there no longer is a grave danger. So that's an interesting question to see if someone will decide to bring a lawsuit to challenge this and whether you know, it would uh, withstand scrutiny or not. Yeah, so I guess the you know, 
key question is, who exactly is covered by this? Uh, hospitals, I think, obviously, but what about outpatient facilities, physician offices? What about administration uh, buildings, uh, you know, where you have administration separate from the hospital? Are they going to be covered by this? Because there's a lot of really detailed rules, some of which that seem to go on beyond the uh, CDC guidelines about, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, whatever. Yeah, so that may be the uh, the salvation, for lack of a better word, for a lot of uh, healthcare employers. Uh, there are some exceptions to uh, to the requirements, so that even certain places within a hospital would not be required to comply with all these requirements. So let's just sort of sort of back up. Generally, the uh, ETS applies to all settings where an employer provides healthcare services or healthcare support services. So that's hospitals, et cetera, you know, different kinds of healthcare facilities. But the ETS then says uh, there are a number of exceptions. Uh, the first one being, the first one we want to talk about, there are others we're not going to cover because they're not applicable to hospitals, but the first one affecting hospitals is that the ETS does not apply to a non-hospital ambulatory care setting like a physician's office that maybe is you know owned by the hospital, if certain requirements are met. Uh, first, all the non-employees that go to that ambulatory care setting, so all patients, all vendors, visitors, ETC, um, they have to be screened prior to entry, and those with suspected or confirmed COVID have to be denied entry. So kind of straightforward, you know, if you have a owned physician office somewhere, as long as you, um, you know, screen everyone who comes in, all the non-employees, and make sure no one with COVID enters, then these requirements don't apply. And presumably that would apply to any physician office, right? Not just one connected with a hospital. And what about like dentist's office, podiatrist's offices? I know you and I go to the same dentist, and for the last year when I've been going to them, they do all of this. They come in, you have to tell them, no, I don't have the COVID symptoms, and uh, the nice lady at the desk puts a little thermometer up to your head and makes sure you don't have a temperature. So are they going to have to do anything more than that? It doesn't sound like it. No, that's right. In fact, one of the frequently asked questions on the uh, OSHA webpage goes into what screening is required. And uh, there are a number of frequently asked questions, and you know, some are very vague and some are very detailed, but uh, you know, they do have some useful information. And uh, they talk about these screening requirements, and it might be something like taking someone's temperature. It might be asking them healthcare-related questions. You know, have you had a fever? Have you had any other cough, a dry cough? So, uh, yeah, there's a good source of information as to what this screening would look like. Yeah, those FAQs are important to read because they go far beyond what the rule in the summary of the rule says on the OSHA website. And they at least sometimes give you clear answers to questions. Others they give you an it's dep it depends answer, and then you're left guessing, well, what does it depend on and where do I fall? So uh, I think this was, uh, you know, got out in a hurry, but not in a hurry because it waited until, you know, everybody else was sort of moving on. And then they, uh, you know, try to explain what they meant. And that could create some more questions. But on, you know, the typical physician office ambulatory setting, it looks like most, uh, you know, independent offices or hospital-related offices can comply with that. Now, there's a couple other key exceptions, right, Phil? Yeah, you know, another one that would be uh, relevant uh, to hospitals is that if you have a well-defined ambulatory care setting in a hospital, 
And in that setting, you have all the employees are fully vaccinated, except for those who have, uh, you know, medical conditions that don't allow that. Uh, but all employees are fully vaccinated and all non-employees are screened prior to entry. And those with suspected or confirmed COVID or, or denied entry, then the ETS requirements don't apply in that setting as well. And that would presume that the employer has determined that all employees are fully vaccinated, either by requiring it. And we have a podcast that just went up on our website about uh, required and mandated vaccinations. But even if you don't require it, you're going to have to ask the employee, have you been vaccinated? That raises some other issues under uh, the EOC laws and the anti-discrimination for, you know, in particular, the ADA and the uh, Genetic Information uh, Act. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, um, you know, it's a matter of how you gather that information, make sure it's maintained in a confidential manner so that you aren't disclosing it in a report that goes to people who don't need to see it. Uh, yeah, so there are some concerns. You know, you can, you can certainly gather the information, but you have to do so carefully. That's right. And that's a good point, Phil, because you can comply to the letter with all these other all these OSHA rules and the emergency temporary standard, but you still have all the other rules governing uh, workplace issues that come up as a result of COVID. The EEOC rules, um, you know, various rules in your own state, uh, and and certain rules with respect to uh, you know exactly what you're able to do and not do. So this is just a baseline for workplace safety, and it doesn't necessarily. Uh, do away with the other obligations that you have and the other requirements about how you operate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, okay, just a couple more exceptions that uh, are primarily relevant to hospitals. Uh, pretty straightforward one. If you have healthcare support services like offsite or well, healthcare support services that are provided outside of the healthcare setting, uh, then these ETS requirements don't apply. So. The example they give is an off-site laundry or off-site medical billing office. Um, those kind of administrative functions off-site are not governed by the ETS. And then finally, this is probably the most uh, maybe relevant or important for hospitals, the facility itself. If you have a well-defined area of a healthcare setting where there's no reasonable expectation that anyone with suspected or confirmed COVID will be present, then certain requirements of the ETS don't apply. So well-defined healthcare setting where you don't think anyone has COVID, that could be the administrative offices, uh, you know, because you can screen people who come into the administrative offices every day to make sure they don't have COVID, maybe they've been vaccinated. Um, so if you have that kind of uh, well-defined area, then you don't have to worry about the um, PPE personal protective equipment requirements of the ETS. So you don't have to worry about having people wear face masks, uh, respirators, and that kind of thing. You don't have to worry about the six-foot physical distancing requirements, and you don't have to worry about the physical barrier requirements like the uh, plexiglass, plexiglass screen we see so often nowadays. But it's hard to imagine that any patient-facing area in a hospital would fall into this category. You'd almost have to have a very discreet part of the hospital where you go through a closed door and you come into the administrative suite, for instance, because anytime you have patients around, I think you have to presume that somebody could have COVID or uh, be suspected of having it. Right. So it'd be a limited exception. So yeah. exactly what does the ETS require in those areas that are not 
subject to the exceptions bill. Okay. So if you're not subject to the exception, um, what do you have to do? Well, first you have to develop a, uh, a COVID plan, a uh, COVID plan that describes how you're going to satisfy all the requirements in the ETS. If you are an employer with more than 10 employees, this plan has to be in writing. So that's probably most plans. Uh, the employer has to designate one or more workplace COVID-19 safety coordinators who is basically responsible for implementing the plan and monitoring it. Um, the employer has to conduct a, a workplace-specific hazard assessment. So it's something like a, you know, assessment you do under other laws like HIPAA, like some of the, um, you know, fraud and abuse laws, I guess, where you identify where the concerns might be uh, raised. Where do people congregate? For example, we've heard of outbreaks at hospitals in the break rooms and uh, people were gathered there. So, you know, you do that kind of risk assessment. And uh, among those frequently asked questions on the OSHA webpage, there are a, a fair number on how you do this assessment and how you document that it's been done properly. And documentation is always a key when you're dealing with government agencies. So you want to make sure you get as detailed as possible. And in particular, uh, isn't there a requirement, Phil, that you have to involve and get input from non-managerial employees? So to the extent that's a requirement, you'd want to document that too. Yeah, you know, identify who was involved and, uh, you know, the date the plan was prepared and all those details. Uh, yeah, again, just to show OSHA that you did involve those who were in the trenches working on uh, patient care and, and other issues. And if you're unionized, you better contact your union reps and work through whatever in the collective bargaining agreement uh, would be required. That could go above and beyond some of the specifics of the um, uh, ETS, but also uh, I don't think I'd implement any of this uh, if you had a union until you made sure the union was on board with it. And then if they're not, you got an issue. But I think that, you know, that might push for some more um, concessions at that point because they know that this rule is requiring you to basically reach out to non-managerial employees. And if you're unionized, the union represents those employees. Yeah, exactly. So that'd be ideal bringing that person in. So what else has to be done in these COVID plans? Things like screening, PPE, yeah. whatever. Yeah, so this is all, um, these are all requirements that presumably hospitals have been dealing with and have already worked in to their daily operations and probably into COVID plans already. So um, you're going to be familiar with most of these. And the other thing to point out is OSHA says they have made a model plan available for those who maybe want to update theirs or who haven't adopted one yet. So check out their website for that, for a model plan. But, you know, the uh, requirements are very detailed. We can't possibly cover them here, but they're what you'd expect. You know, patient screening and management. So, for example, you have to limit, or limit the points of entry into the building and monitor those points of entry. You have to screen and triage anyone who comes into the building uh, and follow other guidance from the CDC that is specifically incorporated by reference in the ETS. So that's one set of requirements. There's another set of requirements for uh, PPE, such as face masks, and they are generally going to be required. The standard exceptions apply, like if someone's alone in a room or they have a medical condition. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of uh, requirements. What else? Physical distancing. Have to keep that six-foot distance when feasible. 
but just to point out again, you know, the face masks and the distancing requirements don't apply in those administrative suites where you have a you know, well-defined separate area. Um, what else? A few more points to consider for your plan. Uh, employers have to provide support for those who want to get vaccinated. Um, they have to provide time off. It has to be paid time off both to get the vaccination and to deal with any side effects of the vaccination. Now, is that on top of the required PTO if somebody comes down with COVID or might be exposed to somebody with COVID and they have to be quarantined? It is, yeah. yeah. yeah if you, um, you know, if someone says, I want to go get the vaccine Saturday or Tuesday afternoon, they can be given a half day off or whatever it takes to get that done. And then the next day they call in and say, I feel awful, I can't work. Uh, that has to be uh, accommodated. Yeah, so if you had, and that was causing a lot of problems for employees just staffing-wise, or employers staffing-wise, during the height of the pandemic, when a number of their employees would maybe not be coming down with COVID, but could have been exposed, they have to go home, they give them the, I think it's up to two weeks of additional um, PTO on top of whatever PTO they have, but then they have to stay home and somebody else has to backfill their position in the hospital. So that plus, uh, you know, what we've been hearing from clients very recently is a lot of, uh, you know, clinicians like nurses, like techs, um, you know, other people as well as doctors were basically leaving healthcare altogether when they were furloughed. A lot of them got furloughed uh, about a year ago and they decided I'm going to have another job. And so that's creating a tremendous staffing shortage that rivals the height of the nurse staffing shortage a few years back. So, uh, you know, on top of this, if somebody says, I'm getting my vaccine, I'm going to be off for a couple of days, that raises some, you know, further challenges relative to staffing. Yeah. Uh, and then I think there's also um, some requirements about physical systems like HVAC systems, right? right. There's, uh, I believe there's a requirement in there that you have to make sure that if you control your HVAC system, that it's operating in accordance with manufacturers' instructions and design specs. Uh, you ought to be doing that on a regular basis anyway, but if you're not, now you have to do it as a matter of law. But then they want to make sure that air filters are rated at minimum efficiency reporting value, MERV, 13 or higher, if the system allows it. So if you had a system that wouldn't allow it, you're okay. But if you have that and it's not rated that way, that could in incur some additional cost that would not be insignificant. Right, Phil? You got... You know, you start having to tinker with your HVAC system yeah. and putting additional filtration systems on, that could be a challenge. Yeah, and this illustrates a couple points. Uh, one is how detailed some of these requirements are. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at the regulation, and the regulation incorporates by reference uh, a lot of CDC guidance that's even more detailed. So, you know, it really uh, requires a, a close look to, um, you know, to understand exactly what is needed. And then the second point is, you know, when you uh, mention the costs of all this, Dan, uh, you can't pass any of these costs on to your employees. I, I, there's one exception. I think, um, oh, I can't remember exactly. It's something with, I think, testing, if uh, employees are going to be tested. But for the most part, these are not costs that are expected to be passed on to employees. So, um, you know, employers have to deal with this. And then there's the requirements. You have to keep a log if you have more than 10 employees of any employee instance of COVID-19 without regard to occupational exposure. So that means if somebody caught uh, COVID somewhere other than at the workplace and you knew about it, you're going to have to do a log and 
make sure that you know that's you know going to be available to OSHA reps. But then they have a requirement reporting work-related COVID fatalities and inpatient hospitalizations. So that raises a separate question, and neither the regs or the facts FAQs are that clear. That you know, is there a presumption that every single uh, instance of COVID that an employee in a healthcare organization gets is going to be presumed to be work-related? Uh, and then if somebody, you know, unfortunately would pass away uh, or be hospitalized, you know, how do you link that to actual exposure in the workforce if, you know, you are keeping a log of anybody who has COVID-19? So the, the prudent thing to do would be if, um, heaven forbid, somebody did pass away or had to be hospitalized by COVID, one of your employees, you probably, you know, would, would be wise to report it. Now, there might be some additional uh, guidance on that, but that's... Uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty detailed. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, a lot of documentation requirements. And um, one thing about those is they go into effect 30 days after the rule is published in the uh, Federal Register. Mm -hmm. So some of those take effect a little bit later. Other requirements go into effect 14 days after the rule is published. So you have a little bit of time to figure out these documentation requirements, but not a lot. And then uh, just wrapping up, Bill, I understand that, you know, OSHA is a federal law. It generally will preempt state laws and say if it's stricter than the state law, it applies. But I think there are a few states, California, Michigan, Oregon, and Virginia, who have state plans that are kind of exempt from OSHA, not that they could do whatever they want, but they have the ability to enact stricter rules. And those four states in particular uh, I believe, have some stricter rules, so those would still be in effect, right? That's right. If the um, state has its own plan, uh, then it's required to adopt some kind of ETS that's at least as rigorous as this, but can be more rigorous. And if that's the case, then, uh, yeah, that one would apply. And and I think, too, any kind of state or municipal rule about, you know, masking, uh, physical distancing, whatever, it goes beyond the workplace would still be in effect to the extent that those still remain in some of the states and municipalities that haven't rolled them back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And one point of clarification, I wanted to just get back to something I talked about not passing costs onto employees. And um, the exception is that you can not pass any costs onto employees with the exception of any employee self-monitoring that is conducted under the screening requirements. So if you're going to screen employees, you're going to allow them to self-screen at home. Uh, OSHA says apparently some of those costs could be passed on, but nothing else. You don't have to pay for their thermometers that they use at home, right. for instance. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, hopefully we'll get a little more guidance from uh, OSHA. It'll be a little clearer as time goes on. But uh, stay tuned for further developments. We wanted to get this out quickly because this is a pretty big deal uh, for uh, healthcare employers. And also, by all means, get our uh, weekly free. Um, email the Health Law Express. When we see any change in this, we're going to note it on there. So thanks very much for joining us. Okay, yeah, thank you all.